and welcome to Movie Fixers, the podcast where we don't just critique movies, but ask ourselves, couldn't that maybe be better? <laughs> I'm your host, Tony, and with me as always is my photosynthetic friend, someone whose jokes are going to make you want to kill yourself, and the twist in my life I never saw coming. <laughs> it's me, everybody. It's Matt. Welcome to our new episode of Movie Fixers. Uh, Tone, how, how are how are you doing? How's doing, it going? I'm doing all right. Did you like that there? You didn't. You, you started laughing. I couldn't even get through it all. Yeah, I, I I don't know why I don't expect it, but you know, you still you still floor me with these intros. The photosynthetic was particularly good. <laughs> I was proud I of that. E- I don't even know what you were trying to go for there. Well, you know, photosynthesis, photogenic. Oh, okay. It's a okay. It's, a, it's a, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's it's all all of those are related to uh, the movie we're doing today, Matt. What are we doing? Well, we are doing our first real. I mean, I think we've technically done a request before on the show, but we we got our first email, and I'm going to read that email to you, Tone. Are you ready? Yeah, let's hear it. All right, I got the email starts with found a possible movie for you guys to fix the happening. I remember seeing it in the theater with my husband. It was Mark Wahlberg and M. Night Shyamalan. So what could be wrong with that? It's supposed to be a horror movie, but I vividly remember my husband laughing because you could see microphones, boomsticks, she says, in several scenes. (laughs) I hope they edited those out of the digital release. I also remember not being impressed by the ending of this movie. Maybe after Signs, The Sixth Sense, and Unbreakable, I expected more. Anyway, because there's a global weird thing happening in the movie, I thought it might relate to today's issues. Love listening to your podcast, Nita. First of all, Nita, thank you for emailing us, and thank you for this uh, this suggestion, or this request, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as you've probably figured out, we're doing the movie The Happening by M. Night Shyamalan. Yep. Yes. Then thank you, Nita. We love you. We're so happy that you uh, you keep listening to us. Um, yeah, The Happening is, yeah, it's, I don't even remember which one it is of all of uh, M. Night's movies, but it was definitely during his heyday. Uh, Nita, you mentioned Signs and Sixth Sense, and those were some ones that really kind of put him on top. And uh, this one had Mark Wahlberg, like she said. It also had Zoe Deschanel in it who I love, and the infallible John Leguizamo. He's just always great. So this this movie had a lot going from it up in the, the beginning there. Matt, why don't you go ahead and give us just a quick summary of what this movie is about? Sure. Um, I, I went ahead and pulled a synopsis from IMDb. This is written by Jay Sperlin. Uh, Elliot Moore, who is played by Mark Wahlberg, is a high school science teacher, which should tell you enough about this movie, to be honest, (laughs) who quizzes his class one day about an article in the New York Times. It's about the sudden and mysterious disappearance of bees. Yet again, nature is doing something inexplicable, and whatever science has to say about it will be, in the end, only a theory. Scientists will bring out more theories, but no explanations. When a more urgent dilemma hits the planet, it begins in Central Park. Suddenly and inexplicably, the behavior of everyone in the park changes in a most bizarre and horrible way. Soon that strange behavior spreads throughout the city and beyond. Elliot, his wife Alma, played by Zoe Deschanel, and Jess, the young daughter of... uh, of John Leguizamo's character Julian. will only have theories to guide them to run and where to hide, but theories may not be enough. The strange behavior is people murdering themselves, jumping off of buildings, shooting themselves in the head, slicing their throats open with glass shards, 
just all around fun, good times. Do I even need to ask if you like this movie? Oh, man. Yeah, no, you definitely need to ask since that's sort of kind of a part of the podcast. Uh, (laughs) I think that nowadays the way that we're watching movies for this podcast is certainly changing the way I watch movies. I remember seeing this movie in theaters in 2008 when it first came out and absolutely hating it and just waiting for it to be over. Um, I should have known better. Lady in the Water was the movie that he did before The Happening. And that that movie was the, one of the first movies that I wanted to walk out of. So I'm not really sure what made me think I should go see. That. I, I think I was thinking maybe Lady in the Water was his fluke and that this was going to mm-hmm. be his return to making like really great movies. And it was not. Uh, that said, watching it in preparation for this episode, I kind of enjoyed it because I watch movies now for this podcast with their potential in mind and we'll get into it when we get into the fix, but I kept expecting, I kept kind of seeing glimpses of what this movie could have been while I was watching it. And it was like, I was getting to enjoy the movie for its potential, if that makes any sense. So no, it's not a good movie, but I did sort of kind of enjoy watching it. How about you? Ooh, no, I'm I'm not as evolved as you yet. Uh, it might be, <laughs> it might be because this is the first time I've seen this movie, and like Nita, I kind of went in expecting this to be a horror movie. I remember it being advertised that way, at least like suspense horror, maybe a little bit of thriller. Uh, I wasn't expecting as much of the gore uh, as we saw in it, which I'm not even really a fan of personally. But no, it wasn't. It wasn't for me, and not because of the story. A lot of people don't like the idea with the plants, but I actually felt that part was very well fleshed out, and I'll go into that more detail later. But the characters were just awkward and weird and really ripped me out of this movie to the point where I could not seek any pleasure of it. Uh, You actually came across a theory on why that might be when you were pulling uh, some of our notes uh, from IMDb. It had something to do with uh, M. Night explaining in my opinion, explaining away why everything was so awkward in this movie. There was a piece of IMDb trivia that kind of led me to looking into some other interviews around the time this came out. In June of 2008, just before the first reviews of the films of the film came out, uh, M. Night told the New York Daily News, we're making an excellent B movie. That's our goal. And I think something that we're going to get into you and I in this podcast is the the idea of, is he saying that to sort of backpedal or is he saying that because that's really what he was going for and he just missed the mark. But I do think that the knowledge that one way or another, if he was aiming to make a kind of updated version of the fifties and sixties horror films, like the blob or invasion of the body snatchers, then I th- there's definitely moments in this movie where you can see that. Now, again, whether that's really what he was going for or if that's his way of explaining away some serious tone issues in this movie, I, I think that's debatable. But it is it is interesting. And I, I did watch this movie the second time through with that knowledge of, you know, a, a, an excellent B movie. And uh, I think it's also funny that the bees are a part of this movie, but whatever. 
Um, yeah, that I think it's an interesting way to look at the movie. Uh, I'm not going to survive if you keep making puns like that for the rest of this podcast. Oh, man, I have a whole list written. Are we going to be okay? Uh, and let me <laughs> remove all sharp objects from the room. Okay. All right. No, that's a great point. Just that you watch this looking at it like it's going to like like with that idea of it being a bit more campier. And I think mm -hmm. we should do that. We should take a moment to do that going forward for the rest of this, because this time on uh, and for the first time on Movie Fixers, we're going to do things a little differently. Our style of what you like, what you not like, what you're fixed uh, gets difficult sometimes. It definitely did in our last one with Snowpiercer because we tend to skip around and get all, kind of all over the place and miss things and have to come back in our fix because we didn't talk about them before. And so, Matt, you had a good idea, and I think you're right, that this time we're going to kind of hit the key story beats in The Happening. Talk about kind of the key overall things that happened in this movie. We're going to point out some things that worked, point out some things that didn't work, and just kind of fix those beats. And our goal, hopefully, is for this to be a little bit more fluid, a little bit easier to listen to. And hopefully have a fix at the end that's a lot more comprehensible. Uh, yeah, I think in our last episode, the train really went off the tracks. <laughs> oh my! And God. what I'd really like to do is is make some adjustments so that by the end of this episode, you really feel like what you're listening to is is really happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is our first time doing this. We'll see how it goes. And uh, I think uh, let's get started. I think the the first beat in this movie I've written down as it's the initial happening. It's like the happening first starts. This is obviously the start of the movie. We're in Central Park. We start to see the effects of this happening. What we know is, is that people sort of start to get loopy. They sort of freeze. And then they sort of zombie-like begin finding ways to end their life, kill themselves. And we see this in the park where a woman takes the the uh, hair, hair, hairpin slowly like puts it through her neck. We quickly see there are, you know, construction workers in a nearby construction site. And you is the transitions are constantly followed by like wind blowing and the rustling of trees, which will be like foreshadowing for later. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was interesting with the construction workers is it was the people up top, up in the top of this building that's under construction, throwing themselves off where the people below that were actually even, uh, technically below street level, were the ones freaking out about it. And I thought, well, that's really smart because, you know, the air would reach them first. It wouldn't reach the ones below. So that was points there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, again, we don't know at this point in the movie what's happening. What's happening. We don't know that it's the air or spores or whatever it is. But what I think is interesting, this opening scene does a really good job of, of est establishing that th these deaths that we're going to see in this film are going to be gory. They're, they're meant to be like in your face and offensive. They're meant to be upsetting. They're meant to be disturbing. And I like that it sets up the device of the news reporting because that's, that's going to come up several times in the story. And I think that's a device that works well in the movie and could actually be, be even better used. It also sets up that the very initial sort of description of what's happening. You know, people are in the middle of talking. Their speech starts to get kind of wonky. People freeze up, like literally freeze in place like they're playing some sort of theater game. And then <laughs> they start killing themselves. Right. That's worst theater game ever. <laughs> Okay, so right, so we've we've established the threat, and I, I don't have much I really want to fix or add there. I agree with you; they've they've done that right. But now it's time to introduce 
our main characters, uh, starting with our protagonist, Elliot, played by Mark Wahlberg, who we quickly learn is a high school um, science teacher. And you've already mentioned it, but he he's kind of quizzing his class, just sort of freeforming about give me some ideas why the bees aren't there or why did they all disappear at one time? And he's he's taking all these theories and he's just going, that's nice. I hear what you're saying, but this and until he gets to one kid who's just totally spacing out and he finally kind of pressures him into giving an answer and he just goes, it's a force of nature which I call out because this is our first really big foreshadowing hint of what the the what the cause really is. And Mark Wahlberg basically explains away a force of nature is, you know, something that we really can never fully understand, only theorize on. Uh, and that's just life. We, we're not going to know everything. And then he starts to do something really weird when the vice principal walks in and he pretends like he's hiding from her and then turns the lights out. And mm -hmm. this is the start of what I think is a never-ending journey of him being the weirdest guy I've ever seen in a movie almost, especially for what is supposed to be kind of the likable protagonist that you root for. He, It's not cute. It doesn't really make sense. And it it really is a tonal shift because the vice principal is there to, about, there to gather him so that they can all learn what's happening outside with all these these mass suicides. Matt, what did yeah. you think about this? No, I think you're I think you're right. I think this this moment that where like he turns the light switch off and he's like, oh, the Dark Lord approaches and he's hiding and he's trying to get the students laughing. And I think it's the first moment in this movie where we realize that there's a there is a chasm between two tones in this film. There's Your description of it right now was better than the way it actually played out. It was just Odd. I didn't even understand what was happening at first. You you set it up better for me audibly than they could visually. Interesting. Well, I'm happy to I'm happy to be here. In this scene, we've watched this opening scene where these people have brutally killed themselves, and then we go to this classroom where Mark Wahlberg, as a very believable science teacher, introduces <laughs> this this concept to his students about the bees being missing and what that could mean for the world and why it might be happening everything feels pretty not heavy but just like serious at this point until this moment when he does this weird hide and seek game with the vice principal and like i said this 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 sort of sets up this these two paths for the rest of the film of genuine horror horrific deaths and sort of campy humor and it never quite melds the two or decides which one it wants to be mm -hmm. so let's do something right now then let's we we talked about seeing this as a camp movie but also i was watching this as sort of a horror movie like a, like a serious one as you put it if i were to to change something like right off the bat that i want to see moving forward is i would try and make Elliot, which is Mark Wahlberg's character, way more likable and way less weird. I, it, we could blame it on Mark Wahlberg, and I'm sure he's got some blame, some blame to, to hold in this, but he needs to be friendlier, just more appealing overall, even if he's a little bit more basic, because we've got such a u unique um, threat that he can just be a little bit more basic so that we understand him better as just simpler even I, mm -hmm. I agree with you i think he needs to be more of a like traditional leading man in this role um i'm trying to think of some other good examples of 
like action heroes playing kind of lovable nerds, you know, like a, like a Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. Or, there's moments where this has happened. This would be a good time to bring in one of our 90s tropes that we called out an outbreak because Dustin Hoffman, we've all agreed, was the likable leading man in that movie. Yeah, he sold. And I know he's a bit old at this point, maybe to to do this one. But that is definitely the archetype we're looking for. And we did not get that. Yeah. All right. What about what about uh, if we went a little bit more camp? Would you crank this the other way? Would you go more like? Oh, gee, um, I, no. I I, so I, it's funny. I so if we took this another way, I, I'm kind of envisioning this movie being almost like one of the scary movie movies or something where like everything around the main character is completely absurd and over the top, and they're the ones that are identifying with the viewer Ooh. and making you think like this is ridiculous. So I'm thinking. Like a Chris Hemsworth or a... Um, like Leslie oh. Nielsen before he started doing comedies, because he was like a straight actor in the beginning, and he always exuded this really like mm-hmm. strong confidence, especially with his voice. That would be that would so be like that 50s, 60s trope right there. Yeah, it would just be... Yeah, it would be interesting to see a, a, a completely straight lead. Like almost stoic. But then the characters around them be more over the top. Like make... Make Zoe Deschanel's kind of depressed character even more like, uh, like what's her name from from Clue? Like just really over the top and like <laughs> fainting all the time, and make the John Leguizamo best friend like super super nerdy who's just constantly like reciting statistics, and then the deaths are just getting. I, I'm getting ahead of myself here. No, 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 yeah, no. This is good. This is good. I would love to see our main character be very, or, or even like a Channing Tatum, just like really stoic and deadpan and he he is he is the viewer he is the one that like doesn't understand why things are getting more and more over the top i want to see scenes where like the news is reporting something even crazier than the last news report and everyone around them is just eating and he's looking around like why is no one reacting to this why does no one think this is crazy Mm -hmm. well yeah which which kind of falls into the theme of the the overall theme of the movie it tries to make so that'll be used that's a good point we should hold on to that like people not taking it seriously nathan fillion (laughs) oh I, i think i keep i think i keep thinking of slither as part of it like, I would love to see Nathan Fillion as the, like, mm-hmm. deadpan lead in this. Moving on, because these are all great ideas, but we got to get through this. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned John Leguizamo, who is effectively probably the next main character we meet. Uh, it's after the schools are now being let out because everyone's been made aware of the event. And they, they call it the event and the happening interchangingly. That's fine. Uh, John Leguizamo's character quickly is, like, almost obnoxiously you know Elliot says to his friend Julian something about statistics and how he's a math teacher or no he says something about how I love being a math teacher because I can say this this and this so he basically gives you his entire like character arc and then immediately after that begins kind of razzing Elliot about you know his relationship with his wife Alma. He's got everybody's got lots of opinions on Elliot and Alma, and how they're just not right for each other, and how she's not right for him. And it it, it, it it's awkwardly brought up, having not even met Alma yet. It's awkward just having like these. It sounds like tragic marriage, at least from John Leguizamo's uh, or sorry Julian's perspective, described to us in just like venomous detail as mm-hmm. we're experiencing this 
pandemic and it's just what is happening here so he's basically telling her why she's a flake it's not going to work out all of this stuff well they're all planning to evacuate possibly together they're going to go to philadelphia because uh, it's not there it hasn't ha- nothing's happened there yet where julian has his mother and he's gonna you know they're going to meet up and, and just hole out there until this blows over is the initial plan. And I'm just so weirded out. Yeah, I think this is another example for me of something so silly that it should have just been embraced as silly. Like John Lee, like if, if like five people in a row were to tell the main character, were to, were to tell Elliot, like, well, I didn't want to say anything before, but, you know, I don't think you guys are good together. It. I think it would be hilarious if they just fully embraced how absurd that is to where he's just like, why are you all telling me this now? (laughs) Like it could have been so funny, but it's treated as this real serious thing. Mm -hmm. So you're like, Oh, I guess we shouldn't laugh at that when it's honestly, it's objectively hilarious. Yeah. And so if we were going the serious route to avoid that, I, I find their whole relationship very distracting in this movie, as I do in most movies like this. But if we're going to keep that struggle going, I think a lot of it needs to be unsaid and more understood. So when, Mm -hmm. you know, Elliot mentions, you know, he's got to go get Alma and he just goes, do you think she'll come? And he's like, why would you say that? Julian should have just then went like silent and been like, it's not my place. Like in that sort of, it's not my place to say, but obviously something's going on. Then we can do what the movie does eventually, which is cut to Alma. She's, she's got her cell phone. This name Jeff keeps calling her on the phone. So it's sort of implied that she might've had an affair. That's at least the worst case scenario that our brains would go to still. And, you know, her scene packing with Mark Wahlberg where he's kind of, talking everything through and she's just sort of sitting there quietly not reacting it becomes clear to me in this movie that almost got some conditions that are never really addressed that i feel like if we're going to take this movie more seriously we need to we need to address because she definitely has a lot of anxiety she has trouble expressing herself there's so much more to this character that zoe's even trying to bring to it that's just it's just falling on deaf ears because it's not it's not getting the attention it deserves. And we'll see that moving forward. I, I Hold on. Before we go any further, I do want to say that I, just talking this out with you, I suspect that these characters might have been written more as caricatures originally. Mm-hmm. And he decided to back off of that, which is why there's remnants of these sort of like over the top characterizations, but that they, they're not fully developed if that makes any sense like this whole thing of her constantly hiding this affair in a very like boisterous way almost again could have been sort of hilarious in tone and just wasn't so the next big beat in this movie is the evacuation uh they're going to be trying to get away from whatever is happening and to start elliot and alma meet julian that's john Lugazamo, and julian's daughter jess she's probably around like 10 to 12 year old girl who is really is really scared because her mom's not around and really uncomfortable talking and jess actually kind of relates to her on, a, on an emotional level and even says so that she has trouble expressing herself too it was kind of sweet meanwhile julian is just being the most shady dick to her while this is going on thereby increasing drama between alma and elliot 
And they board a train uh, to go to Pennsylvania, which, you know, seems like a good idea, but they're all like on their phones texting. Julian's trying to find out, oh, his wife wasn't able to make it to the train station because traffic, you know, is obviously backed up since there are a bunch of people getting out of cars and killing themselves. So she's gotten on a bus. So he's worried about her. Alma sits away, is is gone to sit separately by herself because she just can't process right now. I mean, she seems... I respect that she's dealing with real issues, but I feel like the movie doesn't. So she comes across as kind of just flighty and irresponsible or self-centered even, especially because she keeps getting... I think that last point, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think the movie treats whatever she's dealing with during a very serious time as just uh, very flippantly, mm-hmm. as if she's just being selfish and it's clear there's more going on. Again, this is a, this is a situation where had we gone one way or another, it would have been better. Had we gone more serious and made this movie, you know, hyperbole or like a, a parable about anxiety and it during, you know, pandemics and things like that, it could have been great. Or if we had just gone the other way and made it hilarious, I think that would have worked. But it's just the movie just sits right in the middle of the road and doesn't decide which way it wants to go. So let's just keep going then, because the train's not going to make it to Philly like it wanted to. Instead, they stop. The conductors stop it in Filbert, Pennsylvania, which is kind of the middle of nowhere uh, place. And the movie's going to progressively get more and more remote, which is going to help them deduce things. I think that flows well, just how it we go from, you know, New York City to middle of nowhere town in Pennsylvania that has at least a train stop and less and less. But they stop the train because unfortunately they've lost contact with everyone on both ends. No one's communicating, so they don't want to drive into a more populated area. Again, everyone's still thinking this is a terrorist attack at this point and speculating that high-density areas are the uh, target areas, so can't go that way. And so they spend a bit of time just in a diner, kind of like everybody, everybody in this train does, crowded in diners and watching the news to sort of formulate their next plan. So the news is able to give them kind of a area like a like a line of where all of these events are happening and it's just seems to be focused in the northeast coast and not you know to a certain extent so people start getting the idea to bail and just like hop in their cars or whatever hitch rides because a lot of them are on trains and head to the borderline of where this is happening i want to stop you here because we, mm -hmm. we skipped a scene that i really enjoyed and again further I think further justifies what I want to do with this movie, which is make it high camp, make it a magnet film. You know Hit what me that with. means? Um, there's <laughs> yeah, a scene in the, this little diner before they, before the news story even happens. Uh, all these people are crowded in this diner, right? And someone gets their phone out and goes, Oh my God, did you see this video from the such and such zoo? And it's a video of these, of this zookeeper in a lion habitat, a lion exhibit again, oh, committing yeah. suicide basically. And like more or less offers up his arm and it cuts back to the people reacting and it cuts back to the video on the phone. And the zookeeper is just standing there with one arm completely missing, walking up to the other lion. And it cuts back to the lady holding the phone and she goes, oh, my God, what kind of terrorists are these? And again, how that's not supposed to be funny. I don't understand. Like, that's hilarious. You're right. I should have left. I was more just like the idea what? that 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 was supposed to be like horrifying and upsetting and ter and 
and scary is 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 completely lost on me. Like yeah. to me, that is that is in the vein of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Uh, it's in the vein <laughs> of like, uh, like I said, uh, Jennifer's Body or Arachnophobia or like some of these kind of like campy horror films. And I, I wanted more of that. I wanted more just completely ludicrous horror in this movie. I also want to say that I, I don't remember if it was in the diner, if it was on the train, but at one point, uh, Zoe Deschanel's character, she's on the phone with the guy. Yeah. And because the guy keeps bothering her and she's like, oh, my God, you're like a stalker right now. And she says, real matter of factly, we ate tiramisu together. And all I could think of is like, that's the sort of line <laughs> that reminds me of like Jennifer's body. Jennifer's body is this like campy horror movie. If you've never seen it, that's full of these one liners that I've been quoting for a decade now. Lines like we ate tiramisu together are the sort of things that I would be quoting to my friends all the time. Had this movie just fully embraced its camp factor because the way she delivers it is hilarious. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I'm just really hung up on this. And I, the zookeeper scene, absolutely cracked me up because when it cuts to the lady with the phone saying oh my god what kind of terrorists are these it's just full cognitive dissonance it, it's hilarious right if that was supposed to be a more serious way for someone to commit suicide the lion should have hostily just like jumped him and mauled him and we don't even we can't even see it for for them just getting all over him like ravenously, which may not be necessarily what domesticated lions would do, but definitely would have driven the point home that people are just doing whatever to kill themselves. No, that was that was definitely like some remnant of camp that got toned down. When they're leaving the the diner, uh, Mark Wahlberg's character says he either says we need a car or we need a vehicle or we need a way out or something like that. And full deadpan, Zoe Deschanel looks at the car like right next to her and goes, there's a car. And again, that could have been hilarious. <laughs> she almost, it's so matter of fact, so on the nose. I feel like Zoe Deschanel was trying to be in a different movie than the rest of the cast. Mm -hmm. Or she had a different, it was told a different idea of what it should be. Cause her character almost seems disconnected from the actual events happening. And then other yeah. times seems more hyper clued in to the specific events happening. It's we'll, we'll get to that. What I want to get to next though, because I think the next just kind of thing we should cover is Julian, John Leguizamo and what's going to happen with him. Cause as everyone's is looking, this, are we talking about when he leaves the diner and it literally cuts to a slow-mo shot of him looking back as if to say, this isn't the way to my house. Is this the shot? <laughs> Oh, I can't even get started. Don't get me started on the cinematography in this one. It goes from point of view kind of shaky cam to these slow lingering shots on things. I was I was going to avoid talking about this, but they they try to hold on things to really make you think or ponder while other times try to make you feel like you're there by being like a, a face in the crowd by shaking around. It's it's all terrible and just distracting. No, uh, let's let, let's get into this. Yeah, everybody's leaving, but his wife still hasn't caught up to them because she was supposed to be going to uh, Philadelphia. He gets a text from her that she made it as far as Princeton. And he's got his daughter, Jess. So he what he decides is, is he's going to hitch a ride to Princeton. He's found some people that are going to head that way. And he wants to leave Jess with Elliot and Alma. And because, you know, he doesn't want to take her further than this, but he wants to get his wife uh, and, and basically put his family back together. We I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I want to go ahead and just get his whole thing out of the way. We do follow him that the. the 
we we break away from Elliot and the main group to follow him with his uh, with the with the strangers he's riding with into Princeton. We see that it's already hit there because people have taken giant ladders, tied nooses around their necks, and hung themselves from trees just off the road. And they're trying to cover everything up, you know, because they're in a jeep with like a canvas tarp. Ultimately, they fail. The driver gets you know infected, drives them right into a tree. He flies out. John Luzamo crawls out, takes some of the shards from the the jeep, like the just the debris of the jeep, and slits his wrists. And we get to see all of that. And I'm gonna say, let me go ahead and say first, I felt like for a serious movie, the whole scene in Princeton was unnecessary. I'm, I think it's skeptical that a character would just leave their daughter with someone. I mean, his best friend, yes, but then also with someone who he's been speaking so poorly of up into this point which is jet uh not jess alma he leaves his daughter jess with alma and he does that line like don't take her hand unless you mean it and it's like okay that was a good line but i'm even skeptical that he would do this i i, I when i talk to parents typically they tend to think one of us has got the kids we're going to make sure the kids are just to safety and the other one of us just has to try and get there so they have at least one parent at the end of, of this encounter. But even then, if he does choose to do this, I think for a serious movie, it would have been a lot better if we had not seen what happened to him and just have to assume that we know this is getting big, bigger and that he likely didn't make it and neither did his wife. Like that kind of lingering dread but sliver of hope would have been a better way to tell this story. I'm sure our, our camp machine over here has got a different take on uh, just all of that. I don't know. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of with you. I agree that this is this is all very out of character. I mean, especially for a guy who's literally just spouting statistics the whole movie. You're you're totally right. It makes no sense that he would leave his daughter, like you said, with this person that he's clearly not a fan of at all. And then he even rattles off his statistics as he's walking away. Like, there's only a you know. 32% chance she's alive or something like that. No, and it's like 62% chance that it's even reached Princeton. And oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and it's, like, it's, I don't know. It, I, I'm with you. It feels out of character. Mm -hmm. I don't even have a camp fix for this. I just feel like this is something, the only thing, the only camp fix I had for this scene was that as they're going into Princeton, the camera kind of pans over and it reveals all these bodies hanging from the trees Mm -hmm. And again, I, if this is a serious horror movie, then that sort of shot can have the effect of of horror. It can have the effect of like surprise and upsetting the viewer. But if we're going camp, I think it would have been funnier because he's they're kind of in this Jeep. Right. And they're they're all talking. Uh, if, if they were having some sort of completely ludicrous conversation again, if this is like a scary movie movie. If this is like a, a comedy. Mm hmm. They could be discussing the merits of the uh, how good the end of Game of Thrones is or something completely ludicrous. And I think if the Jeep had just kind of bumped into some bodies and they had like a nice little jump scare, that would have been sort of hilarious and still in the vein of a campy horror movie. But yeah, I just think this whole this whole scene in general doesn't work for me. I think if we're going the camp route, then this this should start almost like a secondary storyline of him going to rescue his wife and him not being a victim. I think, I think it'd be more interesting if he, 
if he does actually find her and doesn't kill himself and do all that. I think right. I think that's the route it would go if we're going the comedy route. It is definitely awkward to tell the follow him as closely as we do, only to just have it end in what is ostensibly not even halfway through the movie yet. So, or maybe halfway. So, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I like what you're saying about not even seeing hit what happens to him, but you can't mm-hmm. you can't have John Leguizamo and not see closure for that character. Uh, so I, that's I, that's why we had to see what happened to him. I guess. Uh, agree to disagree. All right, we got to move on. So next big point in this movie, next big beat is going to be just running from the happening. The whole thing is to get away from it. We've been given a map of the outbreak, a destination sort of loosely to shoot through. Uh, Elliot, Alma, and Jess, now EAJ, have hitched a ride with some very interesting people. Uh, I'll mention that the- like hot dogs a lot. Oh my god, yeah. It's a husband and wife, kind of older, driving a good old station wagon, and they go back to their house to pick up some essentials. Uh, it's there that we learn that they own like a giant greenhouse, and the husband, if not also the wife, are like just big plant fans. They never really go into what kind, but they love growing. And They're total plant heads. Yeah, he's talking to They his like plants. two things in this world. They like plants, and they like hot dogs. Yep. Uh, it's pretty, say it's and we pro- hear about both. <laughs> it's protein, and it fits in a bun. That's <laughs> a lie. The exact phrase is, hot dogs get a bad rap. They got a cool shape. They got protein. I think this guy should have been even crazier than he already was. <laughs> he he was... should have been like Boomy in Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh-huh. Like a full-on crazy person that's just eating a hot dog in every scene that we see him uh, and he's always ranting about like he's also the one that's the most correct about the plants like he's the crazy person that has all the answers that's totally a trope in mm-hmm. horror movies definitely he's the one that because he loves plants so much that thinks that this is them them acting out uh, i think you're right and i think that's good for the serious version too you need that kook He's a yeah. kook and you need it's him. It's usually and- like the gas station attendant mm-hmm. when they're on the way to the cabin or like, the, the, yeah, this, ter- this character exists in lots of horror movies. And and why he would work for the, you know, the more scarier version is you don't know if he's all there. So you don't know if you should be like getting in a car with him, but you don't have any other choice. You don't and- know if those hot dogs are made out of people. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So they get the stuff and they start driving down the back roads, uh, reading a map like this, an old school, because phones have pretty much given out in this neck of the woods. We don't know if it's due to, you know, people in the towers killing themselves and the tower shutting down or just there's no signal. I It doesn't matter. Phones aren't working, which is always when things get more interesting in a story is when you don't have a smartphone. So they're... You know, Elliot's using the map to try and navigate, and they're going down back roads, and they see something off on the horizon uh, of this one turn they're about to take. They come to this four-way junction, and they're going to make a turn, and he stops to get out and use some binoculars they had brought with them and finds out it's more dead bodies, so they don't want to go that way because it looks like whatever's happening is happening over there. But then immediately following, three cars pull up one of them being a uh, a humvee with a private private squeaky voice hold on i got this <clears throat> cheese and crackers <laughs> that's the line that he says he, he keeps say, saying cheese and crackers oh, man cheese and crackers yeah he is your your homegrown newly uh, newly enlisted uh, kid and he comes back and reports that the army base is just all gone crazy. And then two different uh, cars from the other directions report the same thing. And they have to stop and figure out how are we going to get away. Unfortunately, in that time, a woman 
in this crowd, we've now got like a fairly good group of people, uh, gets a call from her daughter. She was on her way back to see her in, wait for it, Princeton. And she's in mm-hmm. the house describing all these people outside. We're, we're watching the phone call. First, the mother, like everybody's surrounding her. We've got one of those point of view uh, angles where you're kind of... It's, it's like the camera's moving to look between everybody's everybody's uh, heads. And she we're getting, you know, the mom trying to tell her, you know, to stay inside. And then eventually, like, she puts her on speaker and the... She the, says, just stay inside. Just go hang out by that window next to the tree. Yeah. And Mark Wahlberg's like, what, a tree? Wait, no, not the tree. Yeah. Don't go near the window with the tree. <laughs> well, because he's starting to believe the plant theory. He, he's accepting it, but too late. We hear the daughter start talking nonsense, and we hear the window shatter and a lot of... She says, calculus. I yeah. can see in calculus. <laughs> the camp um, version of this movie is so funny. It is. I'm glad you're... It, the problem is, is the tone of the movie is really trying, like, the music and everything, the, the angle... And just everybody's reaction is so horrified. You're supposed to be yeah. horrified by this, but it's just, you're not horrified. It's just weird because like yeah, you said, Matt, weird. it's supposed to be campy, but it's like everything's trying to make you take it seriously. So yeah, it falls apart. It falls apart bad. And they learn that it's gone to Princeton. So they then assume, oh my, that that means Julian didn't make it. Yeah. And, and this is where you're totally right. We could have just, in the serious version of this movie, we could have just omitted him seeing his demise and taken from this scene that he mm-hmm. didn't make it, that none of them made it. So there's a moment where Elliot loses it. Jess loses it. His daughter, obviously, she's been really quiet this whole time, but she kind of... You know, she at least expresses, you know, emotion. She knows her parents are gone. And now they've got to come up with a plan. And this could have been a really good scene in the serious movie Mm -hmm. with Jess and Alma, like relating over this loss. Uh, And it just sort of gets I mean, it it still happens in this movie. It just I feel we don't spend any time on it. So it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And I feel like we see too much. I mean, not that we shouldn't, but we see Elliot grieving. So, you know, like because that was his best friend. So yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot there. Um, but now it's time to start doing stuff. So him and Private Squeaky Voice, him because he's just our leading guy in Squeaky Voice because he's wearing a uniform, sort of bust out the maps and try and find a way to hoof it to the you know the border of all of this that they believe. Because at this point, border. he's developed a theory that it's going after large populations. Mm-hmm. So they want to go somewhere small. They want to go somewhere with not a lot of people. And thankfully, there's a realtor in the crowd that has recently sold a castle to Elsa and Anna in Arendelle. <laughs> okay, yep. So the, the to clarify, I was going to make that joke, but you stole it. They're going oh, did to you? S- I had it yeah. in my notes. I, I guess had we it in both my had notes. that joke. It's it's low hanging fruit. They are True. going to find a low populated area. That area is called Arendelle. There's apparently a small small town of Arendelle in Pennsylvania, which anybody who's seen Frozen knows that's the name of the kingdom Elsa and Anna are from. <laughs> so even though this movie was in 2008, retroactively we can still all just start singing "Let It Go." <laughs> And make all the puns. All the puns are there. But no, instead they're going to separate into groups because there's too many of them. 
and they're going to both make their way there, but in smaller groups. Pretty soon coming up here, there's something that's never discussed in the movie, but something I picked up from context clues that is one of the triggers of this happening. Um, the alternate group that doesn't have all of our main characters in it start to get uh, start to fight with each other. It is theorized that it's the groups like the size of the group that triggers the happening i would also argue that the movie is trying to secretly reveal it's also the mood it's the agitation that triggers the happening like i think both really trigger it because there are two groups of seemingly equal size and it picks one it picks the one where people start fighting about who should be leading and who should be holding the map and that's when it hits I think, and we see a couple more instances of that, at least one yeah, more. But no, I think, I think you're totally right, mm -hmm. and I do think the movie sort of drops the ball in in making that clear. Mm -hmm. I think, but I, I do think you're right because there. Well, there's there's there, we haven't gotten to it yet, but Mark Wahlberg has been wearing this mood ring that he he's it's really gaudy, and we don't know the backstory of it yet. We just know it's important to him. But later on, when they go into it at the end, it becomes really clear that one of the things the movie was trying to denote as a threat was the plants detect a threat through mood hostility. Can, yeah. I can feel the hostility, not in people. I think that's why it happens in the higher populated areas first, because it would be more obvious and more prevalent there. But mm -hmm. it's just, it, it's, we needed more instances to prove it, but I definitely believe that was something it was trying to say. So we, we, we would want to show that, uh, even if it's subtle, just a little bit more. But yeah, so group not our main characters because they have plot armor uh, gets effect in infected. I guess they get affected. I'm not sure what you would call it, but they uh, they have private squeaky voice with them who was genius enough not to only dismantle but bring with him his sidearm, which I thought surely he wouldn't do that, but nope, definitely he did, and so they, he shoots himself and the next person walks up picks it up shoots himself like we've seen before Yeah, he gives a whole thing about this is my gun yeah he'll never his... leave my he, he recites like a whole thing and then yeah. he shoots himself and other people shoot himself so then our main group our a group our a team if you will mm -hmm. start freaking out a little bit because they and... can hear the gunshots they can't see them at this point they're they're too far away yeah but they know what's going on but and... then Alma and the others start demanding answers of Mark Wahlberg because he's yeah. clearly the smartest person in the group. And they're like, what's going on? Oh no. And he's like, what? Oh no. Is it the toxin? And he starts like this whole internal, not internal, this monologue. And he has this glorious line where he goes, all right, be scientific douchebag, which I want to point out <laughs> from the trivia was improvised and not in the script. That was Mark Wahlberg injecting some of himself into the character. Good for he him. He says, all right, be scientific, douchebag. And he starts breaking down. He goes, just treat this like an experiment. Go through the experimental data. Just synthesize the experimental data and come up with a conclusion. And he just starts, like, sciencing the shit out of this situation. And what he comes up with is, let's just stay ahead of the wind. Mm -hmm. And this... <laughs> <laughs> this starts a scene of our A-team running through a field being chased by wind. Okay, hold up, which, hold up, hold up. again, I, I... is the funniest thing in the whole wide world. Oh, but you, you've missed... So the, while he's doing his whole brainstorm, Alma is doing her classic, not really grasping the situation that's happening right now because she is freaking out that they're killing themselves over there and goes we have to help them we have to go stop them we can't be those assholes on the news that didn't do anything 
And it's just, wow, could you be more detached from what is actually going on right now? Like, you could argue that, like, it's, it's, she can't come to terms with her sense of helplessness or whatever, but it's just Mm -hmm. her behavior and just everything is, it's like you said, it's, it's comical. You know, it yep. it would totally fit in the camp movie, and this one, it's just so off-putting. Like you're you're just that is not the threat right now. The problem is not these people over there killing themselves. The problem is, is it could be coming for you next, <laughs> and and no one just seems to be acknowledging that. And yes, so they they ultimately come up with the genius idea to run, and they run, and the the groups even that group splits up he argues that they split up and then once again our plot armor team along with two extras uh survive whereas the i would say this there were five of them there were four people in their group that they're now group a that's split into a1 and a2 the group that got hit only had four people so even then his his idea of it always coming for the mass population is not 100% yeah, but you're leaving out the fact that he ran faster than the wind. So oh, yes, 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 right. Of course he that's did. That's it. Yeah, so uh, we their... need to move this along. Uh, yeah. So we, we we get our, our new A1 group, our new team, mm-hmm. ends up in a in a house that we find out pretty quickly is like a model home. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, again, they're stopping for like a weird reason. They're stopping because they've got an eight-year-old with them that I guess needs to rest and use the restroom. And they're really obsessed with feeding this eight-year-old girl. It comes up a few times in this last act, and it's really weird. They should have had a hot dog. We need to get some food for her. We need to get some food for her. Like, grab some fruit snacks, honey. We got to run. We're running against the wind right now, and we're losing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they have this scene in in this model home. Uh, One of the best scenes in the movie. I think one of the most famous scenes from this movie that, that, that got probably parodied and made fun of quite a bit. He ends up alone in this office. And he he kind of looks up and sees this plant in the corner that's that's rustling a little bit. It's a pot I guess of tree. from air conditioning. It's not entirely clear. And he looks at the plant and he starts walking towards it cautiously. He he says, you know, what his name is. He says, we're not here to hurt you. He like starts bargaining with this plant. Uh, and then he walks all the way up to the plant. He touches the leaves, realizes it's a plastic plant. And he says, I can't believe I'm talking to a plastic plant. And I'm still talking to a plastic plant. I mean... If you needed any indication this movie thought in some fashion it was going to be a camp fest, this is the scene. Like, writing an entire scene of Mark Wahlberg talking to a plastic office plant is is high camp. I... It just, and, and it unfortunately wasn't even delivered well enough to be as hilarious as it should have been. Yeah, he, he he didn't sell the absurdity of it. I would argue this scene works in both the scary and camp version of it because in scary movies, good ones, when there's that kind of moment of calm before the storm, it's good to have a little bit of levity, some sort of just ridiculous thing that makes you just chuckle a little bit. And Yeah, but in those movies, you earn it. Oh yeah, this one. I'm not saying it did. I'm saying I yeah. wanna, I wanna earn that moment in our scary fix too. And by doing that, I want to keep this scene because, well, improve upon it. You know, yeah. keep this scene, but more better. I agree with you. This this scene belongs in this movie, mm-hmm. in whichever version of this movie we do. Because you're right. In a in a in a serious horror film, when we've been terrorized and are just like exhausted from 
from watching, you know, horror happen in front of us, mm-hmm. you have to have moments like this to kind of release the pressure, so to speak. And again, in the camp version, this actually in the camp version, this scene would be even more serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, man, I want to spend all this time on this, but we're almost an hour in and we're halfway through. So <laughs> oh, we're a little more than halfway through. We're getting close to the end. Yeah. And I think we're going to I think we're going to stick with this audience because uh, we're, we're going to wrap this up a little bit faster than you think. I do want to go to the next bit. They leave the home. Yes. Another because another group's showing up and they don't want to be overpopulated. Things go bad for that group. The next thing that really I think is important or not important, but just so awkward for me is they're they're sort of still walking, I guess, to Arendelle. But now really they're kind of just looking for somebody or something, someplace they can hole up. And as they're walking, we've got these two extras that are with them, Josh and Jared, and they're kind of younger kids, maybe like early, late teens, early 20s. And they are giving him so much shit about his relationship, having just met him. They, you know, he's like, you don't have kids? Or is that your kid? And he's like, no. He's like, why don't you got kids? And he's like, well, we decided to wait. And they're like, well, well, you know what that means. And they just razz him for like a straight up good two minutes about how he's just not handling his relationship right. And I'm just like, who are these people? And what are they doing in this, what is supposed to be a serious movie? But Mm. Matt, I think we could argue... In your camp movie, they would be perfect because they come across a boarded home. They find out people are in there and those people are not letting them in. These are some these are some hardcore. Well, and again, the only reason we stop at this boarded up house is because they're obsessed with feeding this eight year old girl. Yeah, they need to stop and feed this girl that we just we have an eight year old girl. We need mm -hmm. to. She needs some food, but they're not let us in. They're not letting the infection in. And, and yeah. so so first Elliot tries to very kind, like he's trying to be very nice, very disarming. I mean, it, unfortunately, he's the most awkward man in the world. So he's just creepy. And he goes, and I swear to God, he says this 59 minutes into the movie. He goes, we're normal people. And I'm just like, nothing about you has been normal this whole movie. <laughs> and then he starts singing a song that he thinks is a normal song that will then Oh my God, them into- when he starts singing that song, I'm like, what are you doing? I, I would shoot you on principle right now. <laughs> no, and as soon as that doesn't work, Josh and Jared, our two extras, start aggressively like pulling at the boarded up windows kicking at the door and let us in give us some food we have a little girl yeah cursing at them saying all sorts of terrible things they're also just they come out like it's it's not even like good cursing it's like oh you're young baby boy you haven't learned to curse yet and very quickly learn that rednecks that board themselves up into houses also tend to have shotguns because everyone in their mom is packing out here and they get shot and that's the end of them and everything yeah. and our group doesn't even just run they they kind of stand there scared and get told they have three seconds to leave i just i would have i would have done this scene i would have played it a lot more aggressively a lot more serious and i guess ultimately it could have gone the same way but it just Again, yeah, I mean, in in this, we could have just like cut a little faster, cut in a little faster, like really built some tension here because you you know you don't in in the serious version of this film, they you know you don't think that someone's going to just shoot these two teenage kids, so it should be impactful, it should be upsetting when it happens, Mm -hmm. and because because again of the way this was all handled. You're not actually that upset about it. You're like, yeah, they were pretty fucking annoying. Well, and yeah, it's like you said with Mark Wahlberg. You almost want them to get shot. <laughs> you yeah. shouldn't want that. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe in the camp version. I don't know, but ugh. all right. Powering forward, uh, we're kind of at the last main beat of this movie, which is we're gonna shack out, shack up. We're gonna and- call this last beat "Why You Eye in My Lemon Drink." <laughs> Yep, because they're going to shack up and uh, try and wait out the happening. They come across and even more, we just get more and more secluded each time, which is fine. But now just completely off the grid, completely off any roads is a house with no seemingly no power, no modern conveniences. And just one old woman sitting on a porch drinking her lemon drink. And she's... She's real crotchety. She clearly hates the world. Yeah, she's a hermit, so she's got all the tendencies of a hermit, and is just a little slower talk, a little eyeing suspiciously of them, but does sort of the the correct thing and goes, well, I guess I have to ha- invite you over for dinner now, and then after... It's, it's always so begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the right thing to do is yes. to ask you to stay for dinner. Uh, I guess the right thing to do is to let you stay the night. Mm-hmm. I guess the right thing to do is not murder myself in the morning (laughs) yeah they uh, we can we can skip through the whole scene it's just awkward after awkward and i i kind of like her character if i'm being honest oh i do too she's one of the only real Mm -hmm. like true m night Shyamalan characters in this movie that's Mm -hmm. really makes you very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. you know she she's this kind of sweet old lady who's also clearly completely crazy and you're you're like is she gonna murder people like she's one of the few actual horror elements to this movie and she gives us the kind of last bit of important exposition which is this house is so old it used to be used during like slavery times to hide slaves there's a shed out back where they could hide and there's a pipe that goes underground and when you can talk to them it goes to the main house and when you talk into it it sounds like they're right next to you and it's yeah, like, the speaking tube scene it's so weird she brings it up at dinner kind of mm-hmm. unprompted alma says something oh it's a beautiful house and she goes oh thank you it's super old and there's a speaking tube in the basement that's gonna come in handy three scenes from now mm-hmm. basically it's we, just real we obvious could, yeah we could have gotten that more organically if we'd have had more time or if maybe the dialogue had led to it i it just needed to get dropped, and she said it. Yeah, and it's just—it's sort of also. I would, I could make the argument that it it helps emphasize that her world is literally everything around this house, and that's it. They try to tell her what's going on. She's like, "Don't tell me. Don't don't even tell me. I don't care what's happening." Mm-hmm. Like, I get her character. I don't necessarily have to like her character, but I totally can believe how crazy her character is and yeah. so and you know right before they they do all go to bed she's she's starting to show her paranoia of them and this is important because she's obviously very agitated by their presence that they're gonna s- steal her things and murder her in her sleep and you know mark Wahlberg again trying to be really friendly and disarming just comes off as even more awkward as he's like no oh my god when she's like are you gonna murder me he goes what no he almost laughs honestly his his rebuttal makes me think wait is he he's just so unconvincing in his attempts at sincerity is in right his his attempts to be convincing are unconvincing Mm -hmm. we do have a good scene with him and alma we skipped over it because again their relationship has not been important but she does at one point admit that she went out and had dessert with a guy from work that was obviously... We had tiramisu. Yes. That was obviously supposed to be a date, and it's been gnawing at her, and she doesn't want to say that. She doesn't want to not admit it if you know before they die. And he seems a little hurt about it at first, but then a few scenes later, 
he tells this story in another quiet moment about how he almost bought cough syrup from this hot pharmacist. And she's like, are you saying And it was a $6 bottle of uh, cough syrup. It was, again... I'm sorry, Mark, but if it was delivered by somebody else, I feel like that could have been a funny story. But he, I couldn't tell. He was joking. He, She asked, are you messing with me? And he goes, yes. But I honestly couldn't tell in his delivery while the story was happening. I'm like, what is this? It, it's just like his pathetic attempt to like get back at her is what it felt like just because of the way the he read yeah, the it, lines. It didn't read as charming, which I think is what it was supposed to be. Like charmingly like balancing the scales it it read as like almost vindictive which i don't think is really what he or m night Shyamalan were going for in the scene right and because they say so she goes are you messing with me and he goes yes and then i'm like was he being an ass and then she goes thanks for that and i'm like oh he's trying to say that it doesn't matter but that did not come across that did not come across at all but what we had learned it it, that they had to spell out for us is that they are attempting to rebuild the bridges back in this relationship. And the reason I mention all of that is because we kind of see the next big point in that is they have a, just a talk back and forth where she sort of apologizes and he, you know, for just being her and he calls her out on it and says, no, you've been really great with Jess, which is a little girl. She's asleep on the bed now. And because they've, they've been both able to relate and not being able good at expressing themselves, that's something that we sort of see happening in the background, but we never really see. That's part of mm-hmm. why I think they're trying to feed Jess, by the way, is I think Alma has picked up that she needs food and Alma feels responsible for her. So she's the one advocating for this the problem is is that we never see that interaction i have to infer that i thought it was really nice i just thought it was a sweet moment where he like doesn't let her berate herself and instead shows her how not terrible she is and i just we don't see a lot of that in real life much less movies so it was (laughs) for someone who i at this point i'm convinced has a condition it was nice to see him do that for alma then they go to sleep they wake up or pardon me elliot wakes up and no one's there and he starts looking for people around the house and, of course, stumbles onto the unexplained but very creepy room with a really creepy doll in it. That's when uh, what the, our, our old woman just comes up behind him. And honestly, the first time I jumped in the movie <laughs> is when she comes up behind him and startles him. I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> and goes, you stealing my stuff and just gets all irate and you think she's going to come at him. But she doesn't. She just sort of screams at him to leave and then storms outside, storms into her garden that she's got outside and just talking to her plants, very agitated. The wind picks up. Boom. She's infected. And this sort of disproves the theory to me. This this is the point where it really disproves that it's not high population. It's agitation. It's mood. And that's really the thing. So now the the winds have picked up, the happening's happening, and Mark Wahlberg's got to shut the door and look around and shut windows and try and find Alma and Jess. We see crazy old woman, like, basically banging herself up against the windows of the house to kill herself. I can't not believe she didn't have some gardening tool that would have made it go faster, but then we wouldn't have seen it. And Wahlberg has to, like, run to the back of the house and shut himself up in, like, kind of the mud room or whatever where the speaking pipe is where he hears Alma and Jess out in the shed and he can see him through a window and he yells at him to shut everything up. The wind's coming and they do just in time. Now they're separated and the wind's blowing. You know what? I still miss something. After Mark Wahlberg goes to sleep, we get this 
uh, we get another news broadcast, which is not being watched by our main characters, which is why I always forget about it, because it's so weird to still see the news talk about and broadcast sort of their theories now on what's happening. They're starting to rule out terrorist attack. They're starting to look at it as either a natural phenomenon or some sort of mutation. And they start theorizing that, you know, we're going to reach our peak at X time and then it's going to drastically fall down. They never explain where the science for that comes from, but that's what they're saying is going to happen. And that's important because unbeknownst to our main characters, that's what's happening. The peak has risen you know it's now going after individuals or not who knows but it just gets so unclear but now they're trapped and the wind's blowing like mad and they think this is it they're they're reliving their kind of first date and you know he get where he gives her the mood ring and this cute story about how they thought that the the color meant that they were in love but it turns out it just meant that she was horny yeah. and they had a good laugh about that. They're, they're having, they're like, hope is lost. This is the end times kind of moment. Mm-hmm. And then this scientist, the science teacher who up until this point is, is all about like logic and reasoning decides if we're going to die, I'm going to come be with you and decides to run out towards the shed as if he doesn't care that that could mean that they all kill themselves together like no. I don't know why he doesn't think that we could just like wait until this passes over. It, it just it seems completely against character that he just decides, screw it, we're gonna run and be together, even if that means we all murder each other. Yeah, I think he'd just given up, but that was still not clear or or even like logical, even in an emotional state. Uh, but they do they they all step out together with the little girl, and I think. It is my theory, but this is just my conjecture because of everything else, that the happening did not happen to them because they kind of reached this state of Zen. They had, you know, obviously sort of remembered why they loved each other and found that and then prioritized being near each other at the end rather than prolonging the inevitable. And it was that Zen state. Like, scientifically, it sort of argued that they made it past the peak. I don't think they did. I think they defeated the plants with the power of love. Yes. That's what I think happened. I I think that's what happened. And you know what? Good (laughs) on you. Good on you. I'm not even fixing that because one of the complaints about this movie is that it was sort of anticlimactic in its end. But there was never there was never a monster. There was never going to be this big end. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was all about survival and it was all about their journey. And if they weren't such awkward people. The fact that they sort of found peace at the end would be, A, mm-hmm. really on brand. Like, that sort of emotional catharsis would be really on brand for M. Night. And if it would also sort of really sort of identify that it was the plants, and the plants are sapient, and they did make a choice to spare them. I would have, like, maybe emphasized somehow that a bit more. So Because yeah. that's... That's your twist, is that it's the plants. The plants are mad. People don't like that. I personally think it's very it's in the realm of science fiction very plausible to assume that plants are sapient that you know like is explained afterwards we get this news broadcast explaining you know just the effects this had it was only in the northeast it was in this one place the death toll it was so quick and done with and we have this one scientist believing that you know plants can't get up and run when they're in trouble they had to evolve they had to adapt and this was a warning to us and, you know, the reaction from the newscaster and everybody else is skeptical, which, again, I found very believable. Well, if this was a warning, it would probably if this was 
natural. It would have happened in other places too, which is kind of setting up our ending ending, which I like. But before that, we get to see that uh, we, we just get the happy ending of Elliot, Alma, and Jess. Three months later, they're living together. Jess is going to school, almost taking a pregnancy test. Mark Wahlberg, who apparently is not going to school yet, comes home from walking her to the bus stop. And, you know, she's there to tell him they're pregnant. And it's sort of the full, like, healing of their relationship through this trauma, which, fine, that's fine. I got nothing wrong with that. Good on you. Finally, we cut to another park in another country. I couldn't tell if it was France or... I thought it was France, Yeah, but I'm, I, I'm also not sure. Yeah, the subtitles didn't give it away, and I couldn't pick up on the accent. I'm bad at that. But basically, it's another park, and the two people talking together, it's basically recreating the scenario we saw in the beginning. Basically, we didn't heed the warning, and it's happening again. And I thought that was great. I was like... yeah. That's awesome. I, and again, that ending works for mm-hmm. for either one of our fixes. Yeah, I would I would keep all of that. I mean, the end I would pretty much keep. We've acknowledged a little bit of anticlimactic, but that's that can very much be M Night. He can build you up and then drop you like that. It's the ride, and that's why this movie is terrible for me. Not because of the plants, not because of the pseudoscience. I was actually like, that's a really great idea. But what they didn't have were really good characters to put to run through that idea, to run through that adventure. We we lost that yeah i i think we're we're weirdly on the same page for two sort of very different fixes the the overall like story and concept and everything really works in this movie it's the characters aren't developed enough one way or another they either need to be better developed as a serious horror film or better developed as like a high camp horror film either way it would make the movie work more. I I think we've really kind of touched on what our fixes are, but the last thing I want to say is, you know how the movie Evolution, one of our shared favorite movies of all time, ends with a Head & Shoulders commercial? Love that movie. I want my camp movie to end with an Oscar Mayer hot dog commercial. Yes! Oh. Where where it's just crazy old dudes saying, hot dogs get a bad rap. They've got a cool (laughs) shape, and they've got protein oh my god okay <laughs> i've always liked your camp idea i just i i was dragging the, the serious thriller because i felt like that's what the movie was trying to do whether it yeah meant to no or and not. i get that and here's the thing i think both movies would be excellent like i want to uh, watch your more serious movie and i want to watch my camp movie and i want to watch them both i really really do Oh, man. I'm going to throw out just a couple quick recommendations for listeners, uh, specifically because of this movie. Uh, I've already mentioned them, but I'm going to mention them again. Um, if you're if you want like a campy horror film, uh, Slither's a great example. Jennifer's Body is a great like cult film. I, Arachnophobia is one of my favorites. I, I don't know that it really qualifies as camp, but I, I really like the movie Arachnophobia uh, with Jeff Daniels and uh, John Goodman. It's it, it's another fun kind of campy horror film that I, I think if you if you like, oh, uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. That's another one that I think really sort of fits the genre. Uh, you had any recommendations for our listeners? Uh, yeah, except nothing related to this. It's just kind of what I've been watching right now and binging. So there's a podcast I like that uh, follows it sort of is like an improv based off uh, Dungeons and Dragons. It's called Dice Funk. 
Mm-hmm. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons and Dragons. It's not really that important. They've got they're about to do their seventh season, but here's the best news. Each season is a self-contained story. I would honestly scroll through their library and start at season three. You know, a story that was created by some, you know, by the dungeon master that then has players that come and interact in the world. He sort of creates a world, some characters, and an outline of things he might try and do. And it's amazing how fluid and consistent the story is because he had, because he's not locked down in anything, he adapts. And, you know, there's a diverse cast and it just gets more diverse uh, each season. And it's just a lot of fun. And I got my wife Chrissy listening to it and now she's binging it. And it was one of those things where she just have her headphones on and just start cackling in the house because it's it's very comical. It's it does not take itself seriously. It's just been so much fun to not plug this podcast at this point. Dice Funk. Uh, I would I, I would be remiss. Uh, other than that, a uh, new season of Shira is out, and I love that show. Well, that is our fix for this week. I hope you guys have enjoyed our fix for movie fix or for the happening. Uh, thank you, Nita, again for your your uh, request. I hope our fix was to your liking. Love you, Nita. If you have. If you have a request or a comment about a previous episode or this episode, uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie fixers. You can also email us at Matt and Tony movie fixers at gmail.com. That's Matt with two T's and Tony movie fixers at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you do reach out, let us know what you think of this uh, new format. We're going to keep trying it for a little while uh, see how we how we like it. And we're definitely going to take your feedback in consideration. So let us know what you think about our format and let us know what else you'd like us to fix. We appreciate getting this. We're obviously, if we get an email, we're going to try and bump it up as high as we can up into the, the queue. And lastly, just uh, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts. Matt, are we anywhere else? Yeah, we're on Apple. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play Podcasts. We're on Spotify. Just take a just look for Movie Fixers. There's another Movie Fixers podcast. Uh, they've only got a couple episodes and they're not as good as ours. So just don't worry about that. Oh, poor guys. <laughs> well, we're the Matt and Tony Movie Fixers. And if you don't mind... Certainly, since we got some competition, give us a rating. Five stars would be awesome. I don't know if we deserve it, but but just know that we'll work towards it. The guilt will drive us. I was going to say, if you give us five stars, we'll make sure that we work towards those five stars. Got that that good work hard guilt. Well, until next time, everybody, remember hot dogs get a bad rap. They got a cool shape and they got protein. This has been Matt and Tony, your movie fixers. Join us again next time for another fix. Bye.